Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Head of Biomechanics at the Aspire Academy, Phil Graham-Smith. Thanks for tuning in to episode 149 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I'm delighted to bring uh, a fellow Yorkshireman, uh, Phil Graham-Smith, onto the podcast, who is the Head of Biomechanics at the Aspire Academy. So Phil's got a, a fantastic pedigree working with uh, UK Athletics, uh, Liverpool John Moores over here in the UK, and uh, again in the UK, the University of Salford. Um, and then over, obviously, over to Qatar to work with um, work with the, the guys at Aspire. So really excited to get Phil on. Um, obviously, as a as a fellow Yorkshireman, I'm uh, I'm pretty biased on that front. But Phil gives some great information um, with regards to well, one thing that I thought was really valuable is the is the kind of uh, the toolbox that he recommends for coaches and and the potential costs involved and why he would have certain bits of kit in there uh, and for what purpose he would use them. So that and that's that's really interesting and that's that's one principle really the it's not the the detail of information that often is important it's about getting meaningful stuff back quickly and and that's always been at the forefront of of the support it's like knowing the limitations of of your equipment uh, and actually making it usable in a timely manner as always, uh, just before we get into the chat with Phil, I just want to say a massive thanks to Val Performance, makers of the Nordboard and Groin Bar, as well as Coach Me Plus for sponsoring this episode today. So massive shout out to them guys, because without them uh, to support the podcast, it uh, most definitely wouldn't be running or most certainly in its current form. So uh, massive thanks to them uh, and I encourage you to check them out uh, at valperformance.com and coachmeplus.com. So jumping over to the episode with Phil, hope you enjoy. Uh, we both love your feedback uh, on the on the episode. Uh, so feel free to drop me an email, drop me a message on Twitter, uh, whatever it may be. Uh, always appreciate your feedback. Hope you enjoy. Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I have the pleasure in speaking to Phil Graham Smith, who is the head of biomechanics at Aspire Academy. So welcome to the podcast, Phil. Thank you very much. It's good to have you, mate. Thanks for uh, thanks for giving up your time. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a little bit of an intro on yourself and what you've done previously, education-wise, and, and what you're currently doing out in Qatar. Yeah, now I would have been flattered about the invite, Rob, but uh, just realised that it is the school holidays and there's nobody left. We've all gone to Tenerife, I guess. <laughs> Benny Dom. No, seriously, it's great to, great to be with you and um, hopefully we'll give some... Give the listeners something to to ponder over, and uh, um, they can you know do something with that afterwards uh, in the in the practice. Uh, my background then: um, I graduated at Liverpool John Moores when it was a polytechnic in '92. Went on to do a PhD, uh, focusing more on biomechanics of long and triple jump, on a funded program called the Sports Science Support Program which was administered through the National Coaching Foundation, as it was then. Um, in '97, I started running the Human Performance Unit at John Moores. I uh, got my PhD in 1999-2000. Um, 
had an academic career there, uh, career there as well. I was a lecturer. Uh, loved my time in Liverpool. That's where I met my wife. Um, moved to Salford Uni. Had a, an opportunity to move there in 2001. Um, and that really did give me a, a boost in my career. Um, it opened up many opportunities in terms of leadership. Um, I had a vision there. We set up the strength and conditioning program under my uh, when I was head of the department. Uh, we created an identity around strength and conditioning. In the background, my passion around force testing, biomechanics, jumping, all that side of stuff carried on. Um, I became consultant head of biomechanics in the four-year period leading up to the London Olympics, which was great. Mentored many biomechanics in the biomechanics uh, students, PhD students, etc. in the UK, and many have gone on to get successful careers both in the UK and overseas. Um, 2013 got an approach to go to Aspire. Uh, very timely um, approach from my old boss at Liverpool, Tim Cable. He, he took me out there, and initially it was a 12-month thing, and I uh, decided to stay. And uh, four years now, um, and we'll see. Maybe another two years. The uh, the IWAF World Champs in 2019, and that may be a a nice little target for us. But uh, yeah, in the background. Force Dex uh, is coming to the fore now, but that has been not just a, a flash in the pan. This has been an ongoing thing for uh, for many, many years, uh, and you know, maybe we can touch on that later on in this uh, this podcast as well. Mm-hmm. So, talk to us a little bit about the transition from LJMU to Salford, and what the from my, just a, a personal interest would be to hear what can what the climate was like at that time to bring that S&C program to, to Salford? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's funny, actually. Um, Liverpool was at the top of its game, and I guess it still is. Um, they did become a five-star research centre after the REF. Um, they'd just gone through a subject review process around the teaching. They got full marks. It was one of the only... Courses in the country that got 24 points out of 24. And I had an approach from um, someone or an acquaintance that I met at a wedding, as it happens, one of my neighbor's weddings, and he said, you know, we're looking for a biomechanist in the next year or two. So he invited me over. And as soon as I went there, I thought, crikey, the first impression was, this is dead, there's nothing here. But then I started looking deeper and I thought, you know what, you've got a well-established podiatry clinic here. And there was a number of times at Liverpool where we'd have athletes in and we'd, we'd be saying, you know, you've got this asymmetry, that asymmetry, you know, you've got this problem, that problem. I'll tell you what, why don't you go, go, why don't you go over to Salford and see Phil Laxton or um, sort of another guy there as well. Um, why don't you go there and see if they'll fit you with some orthotics? So I'd, I'd already been recommending people to Salford inadvertently. They got the the only prosthetics and orthotics department in the UK. Sorry, in in England, there's one in uh, in in Scotland as well. They had the physio. They got the first course in sports rehab in the UK, and but the sports science had been uh, revamped after many years of it not being there, 
And uh, I thought, you know what, there's an opportunity here around providing holistic services to sports. One of the problems I faced at, at running the human performance unit in Liverpool was that it was, you know, on, on the coast and the, the routes in and out weren't that easy. So location-wise, it wasn't as good as Manchester. So I'm putting all this together and thinking, sports injury clinic, we've got loads of sports, professional sports clubs there, you've got the EIS. This is, this is rife for doing something special with. And a few years later, having been program leader for, for sports rehabilitation, I was given the opportunity to head the department up and then it was game on. You know, and in that time as well, we didn't have, we were struggling to do research for ourselves. You know, there was no investment for us. Uh, a colleague joined us, his name was Dr. Steve Pearson. Uh, an inspirational story there. A guy who uh, in the early 90s was working down the mine in workshop as an electrician. Uh, we were both struggling to get, you know, a PhD student to, to crack on with some research. There was nothing coming our way. Steve made his own EMG system, got a, <laughs> created his own motherboard from co uh, components in Maplin. You know, what a guy, what a guy. And when I took over, I thought, you know, the first thing I need is a, is a, a graduate teaching assistant, PhD student. And I, I thought, right, let's go see finance. I went with the head of school. I said, this is my vision. I need this girl. Her name was Kath Burgess. She's now a program leader up at Robert Gordon in Aberdeen probably the most, uh, the best student I've ever taught undergrad. I thought, I cannot let her go. And she didn't let me down either. We got her in, we used the sessional funding for part-time lecturers and we created a position and that kick-started our research drive there. And year on year then, we got another graduate teaching assistant, Liz Fowler, then Alan Munro and the, and the viewers, John Ratcliffe. And, and, and eventually John McMahon, and we created a flow of PhD students there. So the, the, the whole drive around it was to create this holistic um, service around sport, which was supplemented with good, strong um, partnerships that would give us quality-assured placements rather than sending people to Total Fitness or David Lloyd's. You know, we wanted... We wanted people with degrees working in strength and conditioning, uh, watching out, watching over and mentoring our, our students in, in those situations. So the partnerships uh, helped to drive research and we got the teaching assistants uh, to do research as well. And it all started way back in 2004 and, and along the way then we, we appointed some quality uh, staff, Paul Comfort, Paul Jones, and, and they've gone on now to, to really drive that, that strength and conditioning program and research uh, further. But the, the bottom line is we were never going to compete with, with John Moores or Manchester Met in the region from a research point of view at that time. We had to create something and we created that identity around strength and conditioning. And, uh, you know, it, it's really paid off and, you know, I'm not no longer at Salford, but I wish my former colleagues all the best there, and I think they're doing a great job in in, in maintaining that identity that we we created. Mm -hmm. So, in terms of the biomechanics support yeah. from your um, past, I suppose from early '90s, 
what was that? I mean, what does that kind of support look like then, and what does it look like now? Oh, light years ahead now. Crikey, you know. But, you know, I think you've got to remember, you know, one of the other things around the S&C, just to go back a minute, there, there was, back in the early 2000s, there was no career pathway to talk about for sports scientists. You know, the, the English Institute of Sport probably started in, sorry, 97 or something, I guess. So that was really the onset of, you know, we'll appoint a few performance analysts here, you know, we'll appoint... Uh, a physiologist, a biomech, and what have you. But the, the, those jobs are few and far between. You could hardly call it a career pathway. You had to, you, you had to be the right person at the right time. But for me, the employability of, of graduates was something that was on my heart way, way back into the 90s. I remember Adrian, Adrian Lee's my PhD uh, supervisor saying, Phil, what do you want to do when you finish? He says, well, I really don't want to go into lecturing. Why not? I says, because I don't think there's any future for our graduates. Right now, they're, they're, they go into accounting, they go to the police, they go into the army. There's no career pathway. And Adrian's a very wise man. And he says, but you know what he realizes is that sports science isn't a vocational degree right now, but it may be in the future. And, and sure it was. You know, People went off and did, showed that they had an ability to, to learn, to research, to problem solve, all these transferable skills. But I think through, through creating more specific programs like S&C, we, we have you know, helped to generate a career pathway for, in, in, in a very holistic way of the sports science graduates. You know, you know, we. I've gone going back over ground here, but you know, part of that creating that identity was that all the staff we had at Salford did the CSCS course. Martin Matthews was instrumental in in setting up an accredited program for us there, and our students, because they were graduating through our course, ended up graduating with with having already done the examination. So on graduation, they were already ahead of other graduates in strength and conditioning they had that CSCS behind the name as well you know some people may argue well, what what relevance is that in in the UK but you know it's still a, a worldwide recognized award um, going back then to the support around biomechanics you know there was no career pathway um, everything was operated there's no high performance centers there's no English Institute of Sport or Scottish Institute, there was nothing. And everything was driven out of universities. Our labs is where squads used to come. You know, we used to have uh, some of the football teams come in. You know, Everton and uh, Tranmere used to come to our labs and, and what have you. So, you know, it, it was delivered out of a university setting, which wasn't ideal. We didn't have running tracks. You know, we had to go to Tree Athletic Centre to do some field-based tests and then they come down to the lab where we do isokinetics, some force plate tests, this, that and the other. Um, and then, you know, that worked well, it served purpose, we got the, the, the normative data on, on parameters that were needed, um, but the technologies didn't give us what we, we really wanted. At the time they gave us what we wanted, but in an ideal scenario it was too long, the, the feedback delay was too long. So give me an, I'll give you an example about competition analysis. We would go down to the three A's championships in Birmingham or London, Sheffield, wherever they were, 
we take two high-speed cine cameras. That was an art in itself in loading cinefilm, 16mm cinefilm, and you would be praying that you didn't under or overexpose that, that film. There was a real art to it. You would, you would take the, vid, the, the cine, you'd bring it back, you'd send it off to Kodak, it'll come back a month later, I'd then sit behind a, a curtain for a month solid. I didn't see daylight for a month. <laughs> and I'd be digitizing manually, frame by frame, 18 body points. And we ended up developing the technical model around jumping. And it was a long, laborious process. But, and, and the feedback then would arrive in September. You know, so you're doing two and a half months to get any, any feedback on one jump per athlete in having spent a month digitizing. So now, you know, what we, we did supplement that with an edited video and approach speed, step lens, phase distances and what have you. So they got, they got that back within a week. So while, whilst things were going to Kodak to get processed, we were giving feedback within a week on, on a very basic level. And that's, that's one principle, really. The, it's not the, the detail of information that often is important. It's about getting meaningful stuff back quickly. And, and that's always been at the forefront of, of the support. It's like knowing the limitations of, of your equipment uh, and actually making it usable in a timely manner. You know, nowadays, you know, you've got, you've got iPhones that'll do high-speed video at 240 frames a second. You've got packages that can analyze information on, on the spot. And that feedback delay has been reduced from two months, in, in, in some cases, two minutes. It's, it's phenomenal how technology is, is, is moved forward. Um, you've then got the high-end pieces of technology like Viconex and um, other optoelectronic systems, which cost an arm and a leg. But you've got a question, really, what is the cost-benefit of it all? Um, we, we have a 16-camera Vicon in Aspire, and it's there, it's used, but it's not used on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, if, if you're thinking about, you know, setting yourself up as a, an, a biomechanist working in these environments, really, you know, your kit list only has to be as short as an iPhone or a high-speed video camera, Quintic, Dartfish Express, which is a, a few pound, um, a force plate, obviously force decks. Uh, there's, no, <laughs> there's no other system that comes close to it. <laughs> um, no, I'm serious. Um, <laughs> um, some speed measuring device, and that, that's taken care of my speed, strength, power, and technique. That's the, you so know, how much would that cost you? Um, what you said in your kit bag then? Yeah, my kit bag, that would cost me £500, good camera, bit of software, uh, force plate, depending on the quality, you can get a couple of Pascos, which run, run through, did I say force decks? It runs through force decks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll stop, I'm, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> um, the, the, force, the, the Pascos are a few hundred pounds each. You know, and, and I'd say, look, the quality is not great, but if you understand, I'd, I'd class them as a disposable product. You, you maybe get two years out of them, I think. Um, but 250 quid in the scheme of things is, is, is nothing. Um, so 
let's call it a thousand pound. Uh, talk to me nicely. You know, do your deal on the software. Speed run <laughs> three, three and a half grand, or some timing lights. You know, I've I've, I've been in and around high performance centers. I've seen some guys who've made photo cells from components in Maplins. You know, it's as, as you could make it for thirty quid, or you could go speed gun. I, I love the Lavegg. Uh, for for me, the Lavex speed gun is is part and parcel of my kit bag. Um, and, and that's about three grand, Phil. Yeah, maybe three, three and a half. Um, so all in all, you, you you're probably talking. I think you could get up and running with five grand, which is nothing. But it's how it, the, the bottom line is, and how do you use it? But I think you know if I was talking about desirables, then you know I think you'd be looking at some more versatile 3D motion capture. Um, th- th- that fa- that five grand would answer ninety percent plus of of my problems, you know. That in my environment in in athletics uh, and maybe football, you know, that that would be more than enough in a gym based environment on the football pitch on the athletics track. That five grand would get me up and up and running, providing I had the understanding around technical models and knowing exactly what I'm looking for, you know, taking a few quick measurements off the video. If I want to go deeper, I'd probably go Xsense as a 3D motion capture system, which is not restricted to a lab. And you know, one of the things we're looking at right now is the Pedoped, which is a very, very unfortunate name for forcing <laughs> souls. Um, and for, for me, you know, is that the future? Well, for, for me, load monitoring—that's going to answer some questions for us in our jumpers. You know, it's, if I want to know what, what jumpers are doing, uh, the amount of passive and impact force that is going through their body in a training session, all these insoles at 100 hertz will probably do better than one IMU located on the, on, on the back, you know, uh, mm-hmm. which, so, which doesn't represent gram reaction force. So, so just to, just to yeah. interrupt there, Phil, talk to us a little bit about um, the insoles. I've, yeah. I've heard I've heard a lot, but I haven't actually. I've never seen any in action, yeah. and you may be able to tell me tell me wrong. But have they been adopted by professional clubs, football, rugby, etc.? Are they still a little bit too expensive for them kind of things? Or is not the education there yet? The, the, these are brand new. Um, Pedar Novel, uh, probably the, the market leader in pressure insoles. And they've adapted their technology to develop a force insole. So rather than it measuring pressure in, in very small areas under the foot and building up that pressure map, they're doing a, a very simplistic version which will measure force across an entire insole as, as, as a one sensor, force over heel and forefoot as a two sensor system, or three, which is heel, midfoot, and forefoot. And they're about... Uh, 2,000 euros a pair. There's no wires. It's Bluetooth. Um, it'll go directly to uh, an iPod or iPhone or a mobile device, and you can record that entire session. You know, and then so you've got force plates on your feet, basically. Just vertical force, 100 hertz. It's you know, I, it's not ideal in terms of a sample frequency, but I'd rather use that for my application than something that is measuring the acceleration of the trunk, which does not represent ground reaction force. 
Um, I, I examined um, a PhD in John Moore's at Christmas, which was essentially looking around that that question: Can that IMU, as part of the the GPS unit, actually give you that load, play a load, and represent gram reaction force? And you know, this was in very controlled situations of changing direction or just running. And if you imagine that is in, in this is what we're doing, let's try and put a, a mathematical algorithm through that to try and pre, you know, recreate that ground reaction force. What happens then when you've got 90 minutes of that continuous acceleration data that you've no idea what's happening? You, you've not got a chance of, of, of applying these, these algorithms that they worked on. So for, for me, a single IMU positioned either waist or trunk, top of the you know back of the neck where the the GPS unit goes, for me that isn't there for for load monitoring. For me, in in, in something as discreet as a a, a jumper, you know, when I, I really want to look at that plyometric load and and dif differentiate between passive forces, which the impact forces and the active force generation because I think there's you know people can shoot me down or whatever but my my gut feeling is I, you know if I laid someone on on a, a physio plinth and, and slapped the heel with a hammer that would pick up accelerations in a transducer that's positioned on them but that ain't going to cause them to get tired so that's that's an indication of the the passive load of just the impact. It's how you respond to that and generate the active load. And I think some of these units is not they're not picking up what the the passive that the the active load is, but pretty much the impact load. So it's becoming a little bit too simplistic and it's looking at acceleration of a segment of the body, not you know how it's affecting center of mass. So that that, that that's just a, a few of my little thoughts around that but let me let me just put a caveat to that this is context specific i want to look at forces in jumpers which are high level forces and look at plyometric the the, the risks around plyometric training in a football context it may well be suitable because football is not a discrete skill you know it's more chaotic there's more more and more movements and what have you. So I'm, I'm not, I, I wouldn't knock it in the sense that um, it's not appropriate for all applications. The message is consider what you're trying to measure and find the solution that fits your purpose best. Yeah? Uh, you know, the, the, the other the other stuff that I'd have in, in my on my wish list is isokinetic dynamometer. I don't think still there's not a better and safer uh, system for measuring eccentric strength. Um, I can talk more. I can elaborate more on that. When when we did the testing in the lab with the jump squads back in the early nineties, eccentric quads is the one measure that differentiated between the truly world-class athletes and the ones that were international class. So actually, who was this with, Phil? So that was... Was it? Uh, with, with, sorry, what did you say? 
What po what population the, was this with? Long and triple jumpers, the British long. Okay, yeah. So, yep. um, when we, we tested the lights of Jonathan Edwards and Asher Hansen, who were both world record holders in 95, they could resist six plus times body weight in, in the peak torque, eccentric quads. There were other athletes who were 5.5 who were still Olympic level. And, and based on that, and, and the fact that it's from maximal testes, these, these were guys who were phenomenally strong relative to body weight, who could resist collapse. And, and, and why, why do we look at eccentric strength? Because um, it fit our technical model. We found that, we, I think we, we, we changed the, the mindset of jumps coaches in the UK. They thought that vertical velocity was generated from the point of maximum knee flexion, basically the concentric phase within the jump. They didn't appreciate that two-thirds of vertical velocity were generated from contact to maximum knee flexion, making use of a pivoting effect. And our research, or my PhD, showed that the ability to resist flexion in the knee enhanced, you know, combined with speed in the approach, combined with a leg plant angle, the resistance to flex were, were three of the top qualities in the technical model that helped them to generate greater vertical velocity. Yeah, so it was that transition from horizontal speed to vertical speed. And, and that's where the eccentric strength testing came in. And, and to this day, yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of isokinetics because there's still, I'm still searching for something <laughs> newer, more innovative, um, but yet it's still the safest and, and best indicator I've got. And my interest around the isokinetics, you know, you know, you're looking at the hams quad ratios and how does that help you prevent hamstring injuries and ACL injuries? Well, you know, we went down a path of looking at the traditional peak hams quads ratio. We went down the route of looking at eccentric hams to concentric quad, and then we went angle specific. And I thought, now we've got, you know, like what Airguard did, where he went, you know, non-angle specific peak eccentric hamstrings over concentric quads. Then it went 30, 30, 40, and 50 degrees. Well, I'm like, now we've got four metrics to say, are the hamstrings strong enough eccentrically? You know, which one do you use? You know, so I was like, well, there's a solution around this. Let's create that back into one metric. So we came up, or I came up with uh, the the angle of crossover. So we, we took, in the Kincom that we had, we could get the output through the, what they call the overlay method. And you would have an output in Excel where you'd have every half a degree of the 90 degree range of movement. And I'd be going eccentric hamstrings minus concentric quads for every half a degree. And I built one graph. Instead of having a graph for eccentric hamstrings and a graph for concentric quads, I derived one graph and it was... You know, it's, it's really come, helped us to, to understand and, and give a little bit of context around a safe range of where the hamstrings can resist more than the quads can generate. And we found that that crossover point was uh, around 30, I think it was 31 degrees. Let's call it 30 degrees. And from 0 to 30, the hams were stronger eccentrically than quads. 
but then that, that angle differed from 15 degrees. So something those athletes, they had very little eccentric strength in outer range, uh, up to 55 degrees, so more mid-range. So the, the, the premise of it was, if you can increase the range in which your hamstrings can, to, can resist more than your quads can generate, theoretically, if your hamstrings had to kick in at any point within a movement, would that make them more or less vulnerable to, to injury? And, and, and that's the metric, which is angle of crossover. And some of my, my new colleagues here at, uh, in Qatar, in, in Aspatar, Nicole van Dijk has is, is been using that, and the guys who are doing the ACL injury screening there are still using isokinetics. As, as a single metric, they haven't found it to be uh, any better or worse than other, other metrics, but I think in combination with other tests, uh, you know, injuries aren't you know, just down to one, one factor. We, we can't just do a frontal plane projection angle and say you're going to get injured. You know, <laughs> you know, we, we, there's no golden nugget, I don't believe, but as a multifactorial approach let's base our our tests and the metrics on and underpin it with some solid theory and say and relating it back to the mechanisms of performance or injury and then let's say well you know i'm going to monitor that and i'm going to look at it in context with this 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 and this one of which may be frontal plane projection angle in a drop landing and let's try and do a, a bigger study with more more subjects with more people who do, do go on to get these injuries to see if, if these metrics are actually important. Um, yeah, the, the thing for me is that if we just continue doing single correlation analyses uh, and we're not finding any significance, I think we're, we're doing ourselves an injustice because, you know, if a coach, if we put it in the context of a coach, uh, as opposed to a rehabilitator or physio, the coach will do things in training without any justification. And what we're trying to do as scientists is create justification of this test is important because there's a positive correlation or it's significantly this or that. I think for me, we've got to take a step back and, and dare I say, have a look at the, the art and the craft and our underpinning understanding of principles to say yes i would continue to use that metric even if it isn't statistically statistically significant and this is the reason why and i'm going to pursue that because i'm absolutely wholeheartedly believe that this relates to the mechanisms of that performance um you know that, that that's just my opinion on on that so I spoke to, when we'd lined up this chat, I spoke to Dan Cohen yeah, and said that, that <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, and we were obviously chatting about that we were, obviously you and I were going to have a chat and he said, um, it'd be good for the listeners to maybe hear about um, what you believe in more, the, the more contrived variables um, that are spit out of some of these, some of the systems that are out there. So I'm just going to put that back on you and kind of divert it from Dan because it might be interesting for the listeners to, to, to hear your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, well, I, look, it, it's not meant to be controversial in any way. Um, what, what I'd say, we, we've, had, um, we've had messages from people, users and, and what have you, and they say, we want to we wanna try using this metric, so-and-so has used this metric. And I'm, I'm not going to give any specific metrics here because I, I'm, I don't think I'm anyone to say you're right or you're wrong in this sense. But what, what I do get the feeling is, what our system has allowed people to do is to, to play around with it and, and get sucked into it to the point where they're asking these questions, which is fantastic. Um, I don't think some other systems allow you to do that. What, what we've got is, is the opportunity for people to, to explore data, to think about it, to engage with the data. And we, we might have a scenario where someone would say, um, I, I saw somewhere that someone's come up with this new metric and in, in the concentric phase, this is completely made up by the way, um, in the concentric impulse, um, what they've done, they've taken concentric impulse and they divide it by the velocity uh, or the peak velocity of the jump. Uh, I, wanna, I want you to embed that in the system. If, if you don't, we're not going to buy it. And we're like, okay, so Dan comes to me, well, you know, what do you think about impulse in concentric phase divided by peak velocity at takeoff? And I'm like, well, do you know what my first starting point is? I'll say, well, let's have a look at the dimensions. Impulse is in newton seconds. Velocity is going to be divided by meters per second. When I start cancelling out the meters and I look at the, you know, the reduction of the seconds, I'm left with kilograms. So what does that mean? And then that's, that's what I mean by before you put something out there, just, just have a look at how it breaks down into the dimensional units. You know, is, is it something new or is it, is it just contrived? You know, but please don't stop searching. You know, I'm, I'm not in any way saying don't stop searching. I'm saying continue the searching, be innovative, but just... Relate it back to your principles. I guess that there's another one that we do include, which has always amazed me, is the re uh, reactivity strength index, RSI. Now, way back when, in the early 90s, I, I always assumed it was um, flight time over contact time in drop jumps. Right? So I'm like, okay, that's easy enough. It measures time measurements easy. You know, we, we look at the graph, we... We get a flight time, we get a contact time. And then I'm, I'm picking up, well, there's, there's some here that are, you know, it's completely different units. It's, it's in meters per second. Well, it's, oh yeah, it's because it's jump height over contact time. And, and jump height is measured from flight time. So any error that I've got in flight time, I square it, multiply it by G, divide by eight. So it's, you're still using the same variables, but you're, you're, you're quadrupling the error in your flight if, if the error is a problem. So I'm like, well, why, why do you do that? You know, why do you stick to the, 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 the thing where time over time gives you an index which is dimensionless rather than concoct it into something that's now got dimensions of meters per second? You know, and I guess, I guess that that's another example of, you know, it's in there. 
we've thrown it in there because some people are happy with that. Happy days, you know, I have no problem with that. I wouldn't use it myself, you know. And I think as what Dan has taught me um, is that, you know, we may try and try and keep our things as, as, as scientific as we can. Uh, and there are, there are variables in there possibly that I wouldn't use myself, but our users want them. And, you know, we've got to see it more on, on a business front now. Um, and, and give people, you know, our users what they want. So we've come to the end of part one, uh, part two coming up in just a second. So just want to say thank you very much for your support, uh, for, for continuing to listen to the podcast and hopefully it still brings uh, as much value as it always has over the last three or four years. So if you are enjoying it, please press subscribe on your chosen podcast app um, to make sure you're up to date with the latest episode uh, of the Pace Performance Podcast. So like I said at the start, always appreciate anyone's feedback, whether it be good, bad or indifferent. Uh, so please feel free to drop me a message. Um, it's always well received. Um, and I hope you enjoy part two with Phil Graham-Smith. So just to just to bring it back almost to where we where we started with the the kind of research side of things. And we chatted beforehand about this and where you kind of the issues you saw with with research currently and going back a few years where do you see the issues with with current research and the maybe the the process of the generation of research and if they're the issues why would you want to get back in and come back to the uk and get back into the university yeah okay you know i i'm a thinker um i don't think i'm anything special and but i'm I'm a guy who's, who's passionate about colleagues and I, I, I see them suffering. I genuinely see colleagues suffering or former colleagues or my fraternity within biomechanics. And I'm going to give you a, a little insight into a recent trip to Cologne to the ISBS conference. And people can take this the right or wrong way. Um, but I, I see people, academics, going to conferences with their students, and this is what they say. They'll say, um, the, the, um, let's have a look. This hasn't been done before, therefore there is a need to do it. That's a rationale. And I'm thinking, crikey, is it boiled down to this? And where <laughs> it's coming from, where it's coming from, is this endless pursuit of publishing. And I understand the pressures of, of former colleagues and one of you to pump out research articles. And invariably, I would say, yeah, that's fascinating, that's interesting. Genuinely love listening to, to people talking about uh, subjects that I'm, I'm interested in. You know, the biomechanics, the forces, kicking, jumping, whatever it might be. But the rationale for these studies are, are, are not substantial enough. The hypotheses that drive them are not substantial enough. There's, and and I'm, I'm sitting listening to these, these talks and I'm thinking, so what? Where is it going? What is your intended intervention with this if you did find something of use? And I don't think there's that critical understanding of how, how this information may or may not be used. 
at the end of a process. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give you another example. Um, I, I get challenged constantly. I, I've got some fantastic colleagues that I work with who, who are doing PhDs, MSCs, and what have you. And, and I'm not saying this about anyone in particular, because uh, it's not just these guys. The, the, the question is, and, and I love their enthusiasm, but they'll, they'll say, let's have a look at this. It's never been done before. We can measure it. We've got the technology, we can measure it. And I'm thinking, let's just take a step back. Let's look at it from a principles point of view and let's come up with an answer that'll probably answer 90% plus of your concern rather than saying, well, let's plug something in and gather some data. Let's, let's start thinking about what we're doing to try and formulate what the answer may be and then we test it. You know, because at times, at times we get, we don't have the time to, to conduct studies. We're in this mentality of first, first thing to do is con conduct a controlled study. I'm saying, no, let's, let's take a step back and work, work out an answer based on principles and then decide whether it's worth investing the time and energy to collect data and formulate a study. You know, I, I see that as a, as a, a real challenge. Another example would be in, in changing direction. Uh, everyone's jumping onto changing in direction now. Um, we, we've been doing this at, at Salford since 2005. We've done little projects around what makes someone quicker in changing direction. Why, why changing direction? Well, you know, it's, it's a, an attribute that can differentiate between performance levels in football players or games players, and it's high risk. So it's perfect for research. Everyone, immediate reaction when I've come across people is, let's get Vicon on it. Force plates, inverse dynamics, this, that, and the other. Let's look at knee joint loading, blah, blah, blah. Everyone focuses on the change in the, the, the knee of the leg in the final plant, the turning leg. And I'd, I'd be saying, well, hang on a minute, have a think about how you can eff effectively reduce the load on that structure. And if you focus just on the, on the turning leg, you're going to have minimal chance to, to put any intervention in place to reduce that load that's going to prevent that ACL from rupturing. And the bottom line is, if you're going to change direction by 90 degrees or more, either coming back on yourself, you've got to momentarily stop You've got to take your momentum from something to zero to then change the, your body position to run back on yourself or at 90 degrees. So it's how you break. Now, wouldn't it be better if you break hard with your penultimate contact where your knees are lined in the right position to take more load through a stronger structure in that position than to put more load on the... Uh, or to carry more load through onto the, the turning foot. And for me, it's about learning how to decelerate and having the, the technical model to train someone technically to change direction quickly and fast, uh, quickly, faster and safer. And we, we developed a model, you know, back in 2009, myself and Paul Jones at, at John Moore's, 
we were looking at as part of his PhD. And I'm, I'm glad to say that in the last year or so, Paul and his, his group, uh, Tom DeSantos and John McMahon and Chris Thomas, put a paper out there looking at exactly this, which backed up the findings of of our research back in 2009, which we presented at um, the UKSCA conference. And, and again, it's looking, the outlook being, what am I going to do with my findings if I find this, you know, to, to be correct? It's having that outlook about how you can, you know, how you can work from it and, and apply something uh, on, the, on the basis of those findings. So do you, why do you think people don't start with that? Why is it is it because people are have got so much pressure to pressure to generate research and or the fact that they're not aligning themselves with a, a sporting environment and they're stuck in a university? What what's the what's the reason? I, I, I think there's there's many things. I, I think that for sure there's the pressure to produce papers. Um, uh, observational papers, anything that you can get in print, you're in a position to ju- to you know to hit your KPIs from a you know university's point of view. I think some of the other issues are that it's too easy to just collect data now without thinking. Uh, this plug and play culture. Um, I think in some cases there's a fundamental lack of understanding and knowledge of basic principles and then there's this this pursuit of uh, you know being on, on bandwagons of self-promotion and, and people just putting opinions out there on Twitter and, and which are often just opinion you know and you know I think it's a, it's a real challenge but what, what I would say is for any colleague, you know, I, I've been very blessed and fortunate in, in how my career has gone. I've, I've been in positions and scenarios where, I, as, a, as a young lad leaving school uh, at 18 with, with an A-level in maths and physics, um, I'd, I'd have never got in uni now with what I got. You know, I've, I've been blessed in the situations and the jobs and, and whatever I've done. And, and I would say that the, the opportunity to, to work with the English Institute of Sport and the 20 odd years I worked with with England athletic, with UK Athletics gave me a real insight into how what is impactful and what's not. You know, what is just interesting and what's really impactful. And I wouldn't say I'm the most prolific researcher, but what I can say for sure is that I've had impact in my job. And I'm not trying to be boastful there at all. I'm just saying that you don't necessarily have to, to be the most prolific in, in terms of paper output and what have you. But if you get the opportunity, I encourage you just to take a step back, get yourself into that environment. It may not mean leaving the university like I did and, and going to Qatar. But for, for sure, by Leaving it, leaving that comfort zone, having the balls to of, of, and the courage of conviction to say, you know what, I'm going to give this a crack, and and that's what I did. I, I've been working full time, day to day, with young lads, jumpers, sprinters, 
some have got real talent. Don't don't be misled by what you might hear um, about Aspire. There are a number of quality athletes uh, there who are fully engaged in the process of athlete development, and and it it's liberating because you you see you see firsthand what the limitations are of just dipping your toe in, you know, and going back, giving you a little, little slap on, giving yourself a slap on the back saying, yeah, I'm great, I've, I've, I've done this, I've worked with so-and-so, what have you. Honestly, until you have immersed yourself in a day-to-day environment like that, you're kidding yourself. You know, you, you think that what you're telling someone, a, a coach, you do this, how about you do that? You've no idea if they're doing it or not, because reality is different. Yeah, you got me on my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I say that with with humility, you know. And 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 I, I'm not finger pointing. I'm I'm not like I'm not like that. I'm saying I've had an amazing 25 years as as a sports biomechanist. And I am so amazed at what I can put on my CV. And I'm truly blessed about opportunities I've been given, but I'm continually learning, continually learning, um, particularly around what impact really means. Mm-hmm. So just talking about social media, where can people find you on social media? Can people find you on social media? <laughs> Oh dear, I am on Twitter, and I only did that because Dan made me. Um, <laughs> I, I I am not. I mean, if if you see anything I put on Facebook, it's generally you know forwarding a video of a of a monkey doing something stupid. You know, it's, it's not. <laughs> it's not Facebook's forwarding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Twitter is is something that I'll engage with now based on post decks and what have you. Um, is it Phil, Philip Graham Smith 2 or something I, I don't I probably not got my phone like that. But, yeah I'll stick it on the website yeah. um, look um, I, I'm, I'm not someone who's a, a self promoter and I'm not saying everyone on Twitter is you know I'm just saying I don't have time for that it doesn't it doesn't interest me um, I, I end up getting more wound up what look, looking at what people are saying <laughs> in, in however many different 64 characters. How many characters is it? I don't know. 140. 140. 60 would be a challenge. Yeah. Bring my bear for some day. It was 60, yeah, to be honest. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I, I, <laughs> I engage with it a little bit now, but yeah. for sure, it's, it's not my life. Yeah, of course. So one last question before I let you go is, I know you said you're continually learning. Who are your... Who are your go-to people to continue that learning? Your oh influences. Influences, sorry. Hmm. I don't know if there's anyone in particular. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, I, I keep abreast of what people are putting out in, in the literature. Um, I think it's more about problem-solving these days. Where, where I'm at now in, in Aspire, we, we try to be innovative and we try to create solutions that are going to 
have impact and help uh, athletes accelerate their development. And I'm not just talking about physically developing them. I'm talking about technically and creating ways in which they can improve their skill um, in, in, a, in a more time-efficient, effective way. Uh, we've got some nice projects going on with table tennis and fencing, you know, looking at improving biofeedback systems and, you know, immersive technologies and that sort of stuff. So that, that's where I'm sort of learning, getting out of my comfort zone in just terms of using, you know, motion analysis. It's about looking at the potential for integrating new systems that can enhance the skill acquisition side of things really so there's no one in particular i think that we, we work in a, an environment where i work with some amazing colleagues uh, many of which you you've, you've had on the podcast as well mm. and and yeah, just through that that that's stimulating and it's driving innovation uh, which is the thing that that really Get, gets me up in the morning you know it's, it's, not, it's not twitter it, it, <laughs> it's actually trying to do something that of, of real real note and, and impact really and that's where where i'm learning i guess fantastic well i'm gonna let you go because i've kept you nearly an hour now um but thank you very much thank you very much for giving up your evening to have a chat really appreciate it and um we will most certainly keep in touch given that um, you're from around the corner. So happy days. So when you come over, give me a shout. Will do. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for your time. It's not a problem. Really enjoyed it. And I hope um, the audience is not offended in any way. Um, it's not, I'm not having a pop at anyone. I'm, I'm genuinely, I see challenges for all of us. And uh, I think we can learn from each other and, what have you so yeah super thank you very much we'll speak soon cool thanks very much thanks again phil cheers thanks for tuning in to episode 149 of the pacey performance podcast massive thanks to uh phil for jumping on and giving me an hour of his time to chat for the podcast uh, and also massive thanks to Val Performance and Coach Me Plus for sponsoring this episode today. So again, for the third time, uh, any feedback is more than welcome. Uh, good, bad or indifferent. Uh, and I know Phil would appreciate your, your feedback on the episode as well. And if you've got any questions, please feel free to get in touch with myself um, or Phil directly um, with anything about what he said in, his, in, the, in the episode. So thanks again for tuning in. Um, hope to speak to you again in uh, next week with some uh, hopefully more uh, excellent guests. So speak to you soon.